I want to start this morning uh, with our time together a little bit differently than we've ever started before and do so for two reasons. First, because the scripture that we're going to be reading from this morning uh, is relevant to doing things a little bit differently. And secondly, because even though some of us are back in the sanctuary, most of us continue to be physically separated or distant from one another. And so I want to do something that kind of brings us together. And that's to, instead of me beginning our time of study together, all of us uh, praying together. So there's going to be a prayer up on the screen for those of you at home and those of you here in the sanctuary. I want to ask that we all pray this together. So let's pray. God and Father of the Lord Jesus, speak to us now through your word. Open the eyes of our hearts to your truth and your grace therein. Transform us according to your word and by your spirit. Mold us into the image of Jesus. We give you our attention. We give you ourselves. Bring about your kingdom in us and through us, here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. So before there was the United States, there were simply states. There were 13 of them, of course. And before there were states, there were colonies, each founded by different groups of people from different places, different cultures, different terms, different ways in which they came together. And over the course of many years, actually, they all did come together one by one in a variety of different ways. And over the course of two and a half years, they finally, after they came up with a final draft of a constitution that they could mostly all get on board with, one by one, over the course of more than two and a half years, they ratified that constitution and became not just the 13 states, but the United States. They became the United States. But that was not an easy process. Each of those colonies or states or peoples or groups or regions or cultures was a little bit different. The people came from different places. They had different values. They were about different things. In a book that 30 or so of us are reading right now in the congregation about history, the history of slavery and racism in the American church, we've learned a couple of things, particularly about the uh, states or the colonies became states of Georgia and South Carolina. They were both reticent, reluctant, unwilling to sign on to the final version of the Constitution that was proposed by the other states until the parts of that Constitution that banned or that outlawed or that prohibited the practice and the institution of slavery were removed from the Constitution. They refused to sign on and to be united until they could be united on their own terms. And that got me thinking about what it means to be united, what it means to be united as a country, as states, as churches, as the church. And with that in mind, we turn to the Gospel of John chapter 17, where we find recorded the longest prayer that Jesus ever prayed, or at least that we have recorded. Moreover, this is probably the prayer that should be known as the Lord's Prayer. We, what we know or have always called and grown up with as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is really the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's the model that Jesus gave his disciples to pray. And he wanted them to pray in that way, but Jesus himself prayed in slightly different ways. And so this long prayer that takes up all of John 17 really maybe ought to be known as the Lord's Prayer. So listen closely. Follow along, reading from chapter 17 of John's Gospel. This is the Word of God. 
After Jesus said this, and he'd been talking for chapters 14, 15, 16 about a number of things, including his going away and what would happen uh, at that point and in that way. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in the presence, in your presence, with the glory I had with you before the world began. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, those 11. And he specifically prays for those who are with him right there at that moment, in that space, in the upper room that had celebrated the Passover meal or the Passover feast with him. And now on to verse 20, where Jesus prays now for all believers. He prayed, my prayer is not for them. In other words, these 11 only or alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. According to the Gospel of John, same Gospel, rewind three, uh, 14 chapters back to chapter 3. God so loved the world, Jesus said. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him or trusts in him will not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his Son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The Word became flesh. Rewind further to chapter 1 of John's Gospel. The Word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And in in the words of Jesus in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, the longest discourse by far in the Gospel of John, which is full of long discourses, On the evening that Jesus was betrayed by Judas after three years of ministry with his disciples in Galilee and Samaria and Judah in and around Jerusalem, now Jesus prays for his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. With the wheels in motion, with his being handed over to the Romans, maybe only an hour or two away now, Jesus prays for his disciples. And Jesus prays for those who will come after his disciples. Those who will believe in Jesus, who will trust Jesus because of them. Because of their witness, because of their announcing, because of their declaring, because of their proclaiming, because of their lives, because of who they are and who they have become. 
And Jesus' prayer was for every person who would believe in his name and trust in his person and walk in his way. From that point on, through all eternity, through every culture, every nation across the world, up until today. And so Jesus was also effectively praying for us in this space, you out there. The church all over San Mateo in California, the United States, and through every corner of the world. And Jesus prays to his Father, quote, that all of them may be one, just as you are one. Just as you are in me and I am in you, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And frankly, I'm a bit surprised that this was Jesus' prayer. I don't know about you. I was surprised at the focus and the content and the desire of Jesus praying. But this is what Jesus, this is what Jesus desired, this is what he wanted, this is what mattered to Jesus, this is what matters. That all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Unity vertically and unity horizontally. And is anyone else surprised that this is Jesus' sort of ultimate prayer? or maybe penultimate, but sort of the climactic prayer of Jesus' ministry and his time with his his disciples. Is anyone else, be honest, is anyone else surprised? I would have thought that Jesus would have prayed and asked his father to give the next generation and the next generation and the next generation of Jesus' followers, students, disciples, courage or zeal or spiritual gifts or power or authority or wisdom or truth, or mercy, and all of these really good, big, important things that we see throughout Jesus' ministry in the Scriptures and the Gospels. But Jesus prays, make them one as you and I are one, and may they be brought to complete unity. As if Jesus foresaw the divisions among his followers, or the differences that would lead to divisions. As if Jesus foresaw the diversity among his followers that would lead to fissures and schisms. As if Jesus foresaw that coming into this family of his would be people from every tribe and nation and culture who would have different views about circumcision, about baptism, and every other thing down to the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. As if Jesus foresaw a movement that would come from not only Jews but also Gentiles, not only the poor but also the rich, not only the free but also slaves. The first two chapters of the Bible describe God's good and perfect creation. His beautiful creation, the pinnacle of which was man and woman. But right there at the beginning of chapter 3, enters the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, who immediately begins to sow enmity, in other words, disunity between man and woman, between husband and wife, between person and person, which is why we aren't surprised that from the earliest days of the church, which was made up of people, disunity was always a threat and often a reality. We know Jesus' words that whenever two or more are gathered in his name, he is there with them. He is present. And we like that. 
We make refrigerator magnets about that. But it's also true that wherever two people, just two, even two, are together in Jesus' name, there is also the possibility for disunity. No two people are exactly alike. There's an old proverb that goes something like this. Put two rabbis in a room, ask them a question, how many answers will you get? And the answer is three. We all see the world differently. We all want our own way. We all, by nature, are interested first in our own way. This is the reason that divorce is so high, the reason that the church squabbles and churches split, and that such has been common throughout church history. And things are no different today. I have no idea what, I was driving down Alameda the other day, and I have no idea what non-Christians think when they drive by those two churches, church campuses, church buildings that are right next to each other up on Alameda. I have no idea what non-Christians think about those two sanctuaries of worship to God that are literally feet apart. And I don't mean any judgment about those people who 50 or 60 years ago bought those two pieces of property because they were the best that they could find. But what do non-Christians, what does the non-Christian world think about what seems to be division in the body of Christ? Over the last 500 years, Presbyterian churches we're not immune, have divided much, much, much more often than we have united. And that still happens today. Today in our culture as a whole, there's generally more division than there has been in our culture through for many, many, many generations. I read something recently, an interview about, uh, that was given by a political analyst in 2016 before the election four years ago, before the election, and he said, he wrote, there has never been greater division in the United States than there is today, or at least not in the last hundred years. And I think fast forward four more years to today, and what was going on in 2016 was nothing compared to the division that we experience today. There are Christians who are Democrats who cannot believe that there are Republicans who claim to be Christians. There are Republicans who are who are. Christians who cannot also believe that there are Democrats who claim to be Christian, as if neither is possible. I can only imagine that in the church, this breaks the heart of Jesus, who must not be with them. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus chapter 2, because Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. Verse 14 from Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace. He who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, he has in mind this imagery of the temple, of course. By setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, to Gentiles and to Jews. For through him we both have access to the one Father by one Spirit. But if there's no peace between two groups of people who claim to be in Christ, how can Christ who is our peace, be with them. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul wrote, 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's writing to Gentiles about what was originally a Jewish movement. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And later in Ephesians 4, Paul's name, Paul names what I'll call some of the enemies, the enemies of unity. Deceitful scheming, self-serving indulgence, greed, theft. Look at those. They are enemies of unity. And Paul goes on in chapter 4. Naming upright, unrighteous anger, speaking falsehoods about other people, about other Christians, about other denominations, about other people who are in Christ. Destructive talk, gossip, and bitterness. These are the things Paul warns in verse 27. Give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Paul wrote, Satan loves, he loves disunity. The enemy of God's kingdom loves to drive wedges. Satan loves to tear apart. And deceitful scheming, self-serving indulgence, greed, theft, anger that's unrighteous, speaking falsehoods, destructive talk, gossip, and bitterness that some of us hold on to and linger in are the tools of the devil. On the other hand, unity is possible by God's grace, with God's help, in God's spirit. And here are some of what I'll call elements of unity also from the Apostle Paul. First is work. We don't like that work because we think, oh, we're not supposed to work hard to earn our salvation. So let's just call it effort. First is effort. Unity takes effort. Just as the universe on its own moves toward entropy and disorder, so relationships and communities and churches on their own move toward disunity and division we've seen through history. But through grace-empowered effort, unity is possible. Second is what Paul calls in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. We hear a lot today about people speaking truth to power, right? about speaking truth to power as if that's noble and courageous. But Paul has a completely different ethic. He says, always speak the truth in love, with love. Supporting another person, advocating for another person, being on the other person's team and side, wishing the other person well, even as you speak truth to them. Speaking truth always in love. If you can't speak in love, Paul says, just don't say anything at all. Next, Paul says to exhibit compassion toward one another. Practice compassion with one another. Suffer with one another, literally is what this means in the Latin and in Greek. Share in one another's suffering and pain. This builds unity. To own another person's pain. To let another person's pain and suffering belong to you as well to take it on and carry it with them. 
And then Paul encourages the Ephesians to forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven you. Unity simply cannot happen apart from forgiveness. Unity simply cannot exist apart from forgiveness. Unity cannot be sustained apart from an ongoing commitment to forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven me. Just as Christ has forgiven me. Forgiveness once isn't enough, but forgiveness that Paul calls us to, that Jesus calls us to, is an ongoing attitude and disposition and commitment to always forgive, to always let healing in, to always be willing to put the past in the past, to no longer hold a person's sin against them, to break down that wall. 400 years ago, the German educator and theologian Rupertus Meldinius. Just for fun, let's all say that together in the sanctuary and at home. Rupertus Meldinianus. Try again. Rupertus Meldinianus. He said, he wrote, in essentials, he wrote it in Latin first, but this is the English. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. It's a great saying, and it works theologically. Leave room for mercy. Leave room for grace. Unity also is not sameness. It is distinctiveness going in the same direction in order to choose a common purpose. We do not have to give up who we are to be unified or to live in unity with one another. Uniformity and unity are totally different things. God doesn't call us to uniformity. And all being exactly the same, Paul is explicit and clear elsewhere in his letters that God created us all so differently, but all in Christ who unites us and brings us to the same page. Those are some of the elements of unity. And now some of the effects of unity. Simply goodness. We experience this in our daily lives when we get along in our marriages, when we get along in our households, when we get along in our families, when we get along with our extended families, when we get along with crazy Uncle Albert, when we get along with our workplaces, when we get along with our neighbors, when we get along with our friends, there's just this sense of peace and goodness. The psalmist, the author of the 100th Psalm wrote, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. How good that is. And I think we can all agree. Another effect of unity is beauty, and an illustration of that is an orchestra. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, the symphony, and before the, they start playing, there's a, a sense of everyone's practicing, everyone's warming up, everyone's playing their own instrument, everyone's doing their own thing, and it sounds like utter chaos up on the stage. All kinds of ununified sounds, music, instruments, players. But when the director steps to his platform and pulls out his baton or his stick and has everyone's attention, all of a sudden all of those people become unified. And though they're all doing different things, playing different instruments, reading different music, what comes out of that is a unified and beautiful piece of artwork, a beautiful creation of God. Great things happen, beautiful things happen when and as we pull together. And next is power, which has some negative connotations, so I'll just say effectiveness. 
A laser is an example of that. There are lasers of all sorts, but there are ways of concentrating and unifying light beams and light particles so much and in line with each other to such a degree that a laser, that light particles can actually cut through steel. Imagine the power when all of these diverse photons, electrons, light beams all come together into one single line. The power or the effectiveness of them in that. Remember this acronym, TEAM, together everyone accomplishes much. A church cannot carry out its mission unless it is unified, unless we're all on the same page, unless we're following the same director, unless we're all behind the same leader. A church can never be as effective or powerful as God intends the church to be. D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, one of the great American pastors, teachers, theologians, wrote years ago, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. So for four months, we've been doing church sort of chaotically in this new reality, this new realm, this new normal, where everything is different. We're trying to figure out what to do, how to do. We're creating new systems. We're giving people different jobs. We're creating new roles. Everything is different. And in this new reality, we've become focused on keeping things going, about patching holes, about doing things just to keep the ship moving in the right direction. And we've lost focus to some degree on what our called and stated and agreed upon mission is. I'm going to put that up on the screen to remind us. The mission of First Presbyterian Church is to honor God by helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Our agreed upon and stated mission is to honor God by helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. People in here, people out there, people in the world. To be agents of God's gospel, communicators, and people who build up and invest in and pour into other people. That they may grow into the image of likeness of Jesus. That they may grow in their knowledge. That they may grow in the grace of God. That through the renewing of their minds, they might be transformed outwardly and inwardly. That is our mission and our purpose. To which God calls us and to which he gives us power. And only when and as we are on the same page, when we are united in that mission, will the full goodness of what it means to be the body of Christ be exemplified? Will the greatest beauty be evident? Will we be most effective as a congregation? And now look at verse 22 and 23 with me. Goodness, beauty, power, and then this. I have given them the glory, Jesus said, that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And now this. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Then, when the church is one, then when the church is united, then when churches are united, then when the world sees not churches that are hacking at each other, 
but churches that are on the same page, that love each other, that live their lives together instead of divided, then the world will know that the Father loves the world, that the Father loves them as much, Jesus says, as the Father loved Jesus. As much as the, and this may be the most important statement in all of the Gospel of John. The most shocking statement, the most surprising statement, the most wonderful statement. We know that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. But now Jesus tells us how much the Father loves the world, the people out there, as much as he loved and loves the Son with whom he is one. That's an astounding, astounding message that the church must understand and that as we come together, we'll become clear not only to us, but also to the world whom God loves. The ratification of the United States Constitution took, after many, 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 many renditions, versions, attempts at a constitution, two and a half years for the 13 states eventual states to each ratify it. There are always going to be disagreements in the church. There are always going to be disagreements in the church about all sorts of things. But God is calling us together in Christ as churches, as congregations, apart from, apart from denominations or local churches. To be one with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they be Catholic or Pentecostal or Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Episcopalian or, or non-denominational or undenominational or ultra-denominational. God is calling us together to emulate the oneness that Jesus had with his Father. Our unity was to be a replica of the unity that Jesus had with his Father. And this unity is about not only ontologically being one, but also of purpose. Our purpose to love the world, our purpose to communicate this love to the world. May this be the purpose of the church as we listen to Jesus, as we pray along with Jesus today, as we listen to his prayer and to his heart. Brothers and sisters, despite the change, the the challenges you may have with other Christians in our country, with other Christians in your church, despite our theological or practical differences, our cultural differences, our different ways of expressing our faith. God calls us more important now than any time in recent generations to be one as he is one, to be united in his name and his spirit and in his love. May this be so. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to be united, to become united, to stay united through thick and thin, through challenges, through emotions, through seasons, through turmoil, through conflict. Help us to love our brothers and sisters on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of the fence. Help us with Jesus who knocked down the barrier of hostility to be united, to appear united, to live united in love. Make us one as you are one. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that, bring joy to your people, bring blessing to your world, and bring glory to your name. Amen.